Welcome to Dwight and Shining Armor, the Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 2, Glimpse, written by Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams, directed by Jeff Hunt. Guest starring Evan Hofer, Josh Breslow, Kanoa Goo, Nate Sears, and Antonio Charity. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 2 yet, stop whatever you're doing. You can mourn your giant-ingested girlfriend later and watch Glimpse, either on BYU TV or at byutv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word, we usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality, and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. Among Regana's possessions, fairly won by Hexla in last episode's Witch's Brawl, is an innocuous-looking ring called a glimpse, which shows the wearer a... I don't know, what's the word? Like a brief vision? There's a better word. I'll think of it later. But for now, a brief vision of what might become of them later that day. Greta, Dwight, and Claudwig all try on the ring, getting very disturbing glimpses, there it is, glimpses, of the horrible day that lies ahead of them at the Swine and Slosh Tavern. They determine it'd be best to quarantine themselves for the day to avoid their fates, but of course, fate waits for no champion, princess, or unstable prince, and they find themselves living their terrible visions. Meanwhile, Hexla and Baldrick make the enormous mistake of letting a speed demon loose in the house. In both cases, chaos, calamity, and hilarity ensues. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams and Leanne H. Adams. Hi, Josh. Hello, Josh. Hello. I'm also very excited that we finally have on the podcast today the composer of Dwight and Shining Armor, Christian Davis. (laughs) And finally, the man without whom the armor would still be sitting on a shelf. You know him as Sir Dwight. The kind and talented Sloan Morgan Siegel. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Sloan. Yay! Always a pleasure. Christian, before we get into the episode, I want to go back to Agnet. How did you write the torturous melodies at the open mic? We have both Claudwig's horrifying stalker song and then Agnet's horrifying stalker song on bagpipes. What was that process like? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, so um, Brian Leanne uh, wrote these hilariously you know, cringy lyrics, very wordy lyrics, uh, the opposite of, of, you know, what's good song lyrics, right? And then I just kind of had to harness my awkward teenager years and come up with some really bad melodies and chords to accompany that. Just, I, I dug deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it reads, it's, it's perfect teenage angst music. I love the grunge feel that Greta, Greta, Greta. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And then after yeah. that, though, we actually got to go on set, work with Evan and Mac, and, and they kind of brought their character to it. I had the lyrics, and I wrote a melody, and then they kind of, you know, did their performance of it, and we changed it even more. They know their characters so well, so that kind of brought a, a kind of cool dimension to it. Very cool. I'm glad, I'm glad we got to talk about that. So let's talk about this episode. Brian, Leanne, whence came the idea for Glimpse? Well, it it seemed like a fun idea. We're certainly not the first ones to do it. The idea of of peeking into the future and learning that 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 is a bad, bad idea, uh, that there's no good that can come from knowing your future. And and who hasn't gone through that thought process of like, if you could know what was going to happen to you in 10 years, would you want to know? Or, Or we've asked ourselves those kinds of questions. And I always come back with the answer, no, I don't want to know. 
Uh, I don't want to see a glimpse. Uh, I always come of, back with the answer. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Brian consistently wants to be able to see a glimpse of his future, Cla- and Clodwig, I consistently don't. Clodwig is is kind of the voice of me in the show, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dwight is the voice of Leanne. <laughs> As if often I get, happens. Get general statement. <laughs> um, so, so it was a fun little idea uh, of uh, uh, of playing with that. You know, since we have magic in our world, we have so many things available to us, and this was one of those those notions. And so then it just became once we knew that we wanted to have a magical device that lets you peek into the future, then we just had to figure out all right, what does that device look like? And we hit on the idea of the ring, uh, and then what do they see in their future? And how hilarious can we make it? How out there and unexpected and and bizarre can we make it? Um, And we had the, the, we're going to talk about this more uh, in a moment, about a new set that's introduced in this episode that we felt would be perfect in Glimpse because then even the environment feels bizarre when we first see it in the Glimpse. So a lot of things came together uh, in the storytelling there. Oh, what is this? More trouble than it's worth. No good can come of it. Never has, never will. Mm. It's just a ring. It's a glimpse. What's a glimpse? Slip it on your finger, it will show you a glimpse of your future. Seriously? So if I were but to slip this on my finger... I would advise against it, Highness. This particular glimpse will only show you something that will happen to you within the day. But the future is best left... A mystery. True. True. Oh, oh, herb oils. Sir Dwight and I will leave you to your task. Hey, what's this thing? Sir Dwight, I think we've caused enough distraction. Out we go. I just enjoy. Sloan, there's this great moment, and it's very subtle, when the power of the glimpse is described to Dwight. And all Dwight says is, seriously? But there's this, like, interested smile on your face, and I don't think we've ever really seen Dwight, without being under a spell, so taken with a magical item from Greta's time. And yeah, later, Dwight warns against its use, but there's no denying he's intrigued. So what is it about a glimpse that's different to Dwight? What pulls him in? I think I think Dwight, um, as far as the glimpse goes, it, it's certainly a shocking thing. I mean, if you were a normal, everyday person, which, you know, all of us are, um, and you were walking down the street and someone said, hey, I have an object that can show you your future. And you're like, whoa. I mean, what normal person wouldn't all of a sudden be like, oh, my gosh, you can see into the future with this very tiny circular device? I would love to do that. Uh, I think Dwight was intrigued at first and then goes back to the book. But a funny thing about all the objects on the table and all that, uh, usually when you have a really long scene like that and you have that many characters and and you're the character that's sort of least focused on in that moment and everyone else is doing their thing and progressing the story, you're just kind of left to wander. So I was like wandering around with the objects and I was playing with this and playing with that. And I, I just thought it'd be funny to do a couple of things and pretend like things were happening. I didn't think I was actually going to be added or on camera. And then everything I did, you guys put on camera and put special effects to. Of course really we did. <laughs> which I really, yeah, I really gold. We weren't going to leave that on the cutting room floor. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. You guys really caught my, you caught my intention with that. And I was, I was very uh, but it's fun when I get to do like just dumb stuff in the background and it actually ends up like in the forefront of the show. Um, yeah, with your head like halfway down a bag that's yeah, smiling yeah. at you. 
<laughs> well, I was thinking, I was like, I was like, I wonder how much my body I can fit in this bag. I bet they could do something with that. Um, so they're like having their scene and I'm in here like trying to shove my entire body in a bag, uh, not being affiliated with the mob in any way. Uh, and then I still end up in a body bag. It's crazy. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, so Brian and Leanne, when, when you're writing, did you first decide what you wanted the glimpses of the future to be and then build the story around those glimpses or did the story come first and then you just pick the juiciest parts to be the glimpses of their futures? Well, as uh, Leanne alluded to uh, a few moments ago, we, we knew we had uh, a brand new set uh, to christen in this episode, the, the Swine and Slosh Tavern, or funnily enough, as almost everyone on the crew calls it, the Swash and Slime Tavern. I don't know why, if, if they're doing that on purpose to annoy me, or if they really have it back, but it's like more people get it wrong than get it right. I don't know why, but the Swine and Slosh Tavern set was new uh, and we had never used it before so uh, as we were designing this episode we we were trying to figure out ways to have fun with that and and the swine and slosh tavern is basically like uh, a medieval version of cheers uh, i mean it's 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 a bar that only serves high fructose corn syrup drinks uh, no hard alcohol uh, but it's it's a place where all the people from the you know medieval realm gather and we're thinking ab- about tropes that happen in bar obviously we were so excited to have a bar fight so we we knew that we wanted to somehow uh, make one of those happen and we're thinking of the other stuff that happens in bars like a game of darts like how could a da- game of dart get really dangerous Aha, how about if it was, you know, uh, Clodwig on a wheel and we're throwing knives at him, you know, that sort of stuff. And and also the midi- the medieval tradition of throwing rotten vegetables at performers is just too good to pass up also. So we we uh, we went with all of those things and the, you know, they, they just kind of came together uh, pretty naturally as we were developing it. Yeah, I will never forget what it's like to have rotten vegetables thrown at you. I don't think you will forget anytime soon either, Slim. No, I, I will not. And you know, shockingly enough, sadly enough, that was not my first time getting vegetables thrown at me for a bad performance. So I, I, if anything, it brought up bad memories, you know, and, and, and cemented them into my, my brain. Well, it's that uh, and, really good sense memory work you have going. Okay, so like when Greta's royal treasury was revealed and shackled, it seems Regana's belongings are a gift as much for you as writers as they are for Hexla. You could build a story for each and every one of them. Are these story stockpiles um, things you actively endeavor to create as you plot the show? Absolutely. Yeah, we we uh, we needed we were running out of. Um, of logical places where magical items might be hiding. <laughs> um, you know, Hexala's Salon obviously had a lot of uh, potential magic that could come out of it. Uh, Baldrick, he has his books. He has, you know, the scepter obviously is out of commission, but, you know, th- we, we needed another another store of, uh, of where magic can come from. And and it can be maybe, maybe get into a darker uh, kind of magic as well. And so, um, so it was very important at the end of Wishy Washy 2 that uh, Hexla gets this big satchel full of Regana's belongings. And that you're going to see a lot of things come out of that bag over the next three seasons. Well, and a quick, a quick fun fact. Uh, we, we definitely did design uh, Regana's satchel to be a, a gift that could just keep on giving for us. But on the day when we were shooting that, there was a mix up and we, they were actually, they had on set this tiny little purse because they, they, it, it was, it was a, a communication mix up. Uh, they thought the satchel came in later and that this was actually the purse. And we 
we almost established this tiny, tiny little purse, which would have been so devastating. We're like, no, the whole world needs to be in that satchel. It needs to have endless possibilities. So our, our prop master ended up running to his truck, getting his own personal like luggage that he had come yeah. from Puerto Rico the week before with. And and we we dressed it out and that's Regano's satchel. It, yeah, he was his, he was in the his he luggage. Was in his truck designing that at the last moment because he thought that the through a series of miscommunications that certainly wasn't his, his fault uh but he thought the satchel played the next day and that this was the day for the little purse and so that that super important satchel was improvised seriously in like 15 minutes the, the poor you know, prop department almost had a heart attack wow, and, and is- shout out to my son henry who was also involved he was a he was an intern in uh, the prop department that day, and he was helping him, you know, scramble at the last minute. That was a super intense moment. That's how Henry saved the show. So we go into Claudwig's garden shed living quarters for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, and we have this great scene where the kids are having a very childlike experience. They've taken something they shouldn't, and they're exploring it together. There's peer pressure, daring each other to try this intriguing and dangerous thing. Dwight's not in trouble. He doesn't need to save anyone. He just gets to be a kid here. What was it like to play a scene like this with so much childhood innocence instead of escaping a murderous orc? Uh, it, it was fun getting a scene to just kind of breathe with the other characters, to just kind of develop the relationships between Cloudwig and me and Greta. Um, and and uh, to not always have a sense of urgency or danger is, is very relieving, uh, certainly for a character like mine where like, you know, if I'm if I'm in danger, it's my constant high pitched squeals and my like eyes going back and forth and my hands moving all over the place. And uh, when I just get to see to have a scene with with uh, characters who I love to converse with uh, in the world that I'm in, uh, it, it, it is very relaxing. So so I, I really enjoy those scenes uh, where, where we're not in constant peril. We, we might be about to be in a certain type of peril. But uh, but until then, yeah, yeah, it's very it's it's very peaceful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's great. It feels different. It feels like a nice, calm moment where we get to see these friends yeah. enjoy each other in this kind of exciting situation. And that's where you, um, that's where you really fall in love with characters, too, is when you don't just fall in love with the character because they, they save the day or because they get defeated by the villain or because they find some magical object. But you, you fall in love with characters when you realize that they're just normal people and when, when they're just talking as if they were talking to you. Or, or, you know, if, if they were your friend group or if they were your family or like, so, so I, I think that those moments are really important for, to make the characters relatable and um, personable. Um, so, yeah. That's great. And so this episode is another reminder that even though Greta has slain orcs and Dwight has battled Vargers, they are actually a couple of kids who, when an adult tells them they're not allowed to play with a shiny new toy, they, of course, <laughs> steal the toy and play with it. However, the adults do the exact same thing. They find a well-sealed bottle, probably for a good reason, and instead of letting it be, they open it. So how did the theme of reckless curiosity come about for this episode? That's a great question. So uh, when we're constructing um, a season, we usually break things down into storylines that we feel like are appropriate for an A storyline and storylines that would work well as a B storyline. And then we start to look at the themes that run through them and what good pairings might be made um, thematically. And that's exactly what happened on this episode. We we loved the idea that something comes out of Regana's satchel that that um, specifically of this little this little monster, this little speed demon that then uh, 
Baldrick and Hexler are literally just trying to get it back in the bottle. Um, we really, really liked that idea. And that does, as you say, have a lot to do with curiosity. Why the heck did you even open that bottle? Uh, but it kind of makes sense with them because they are doing an inventory of what's in the bag. They kind of want to know what's in here. Uh, but it still is, is playing thematically with the same ideas that we, that we play with, with Dwight and Greta, that, that, uh, just because you can do something doesn't always mean it's a good idea to just jump right into it. So when we started to play out those themes, it seemed like a really good pairing. It allowed the kids to go off and have their adventure, leave the adults at home having their own little domestic disturbance with this speed demon. And they they really did dovetail really nicely together. And what's fun about the episode is you go from one scene of chaos to another scene of chaos back and forth between the A and B story, which is really very fun. You don't get to take a breath uh, when when you when you go to your B story, it's just as chaotic, and it, it gives the entire episode just this really um, uh, bizarre and fun and lively energy. It's so much fun. Um, so we do. We go to the Swine and Slosh Tavern, and lo and behold, there's Yakopo. The last time we saw him, he'd run off with the love of his life, and now he's singing the news in a tavern under Hellabad's thumb. How did all of Jacopo's songs come about? What's the process? I imagine it was a bit different than when you wrote the purposefully bad songs in Agnet, Christian. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, they're not, this isn't supposed to be a bad song, but I did get the lyrics. Uh, Brian Leanne wrote amazing lyrics, fun lyrics. Um, then they connected me with you, Josh. Uh, you actually, if you remember, you sent me a recording of yourself singing some of the lyrics uh, to kind of get I us. I forgot that. I forgot we did that. Yes. Get it jump started. Yeah. So then I kind of took that and um, came up with some chord changes, kind of solidified the melody a bit around the chords. Um, it's very, you know, you're singing the news. Yokopo is kind of very, you know, Les Mis, musical theater, right? So it's more like talk singing in a way. And so um, as, as opposed to being a, a song, you know, form. So, um, but anyway, so that, that's kind of you and I went back and forth. Uh, uh, you know, trying things out, um, and it was a fun collaboration. So that's how that's how that song came to be. They turned out great. They were so fun to sing, so much fun, and they stick in my head. I like hear myself humming these <laughs> songs and these lyrics. I'm like, oh man, this was a year ago, and they're they're there forever. That's a that's a deathbed in my head song forever. <laughs> so let's let's get into the stunts. Uh, first off, we attach Clodwig to a wheel of death. So let's talk about how that worked and how the knife throwing worked. Okay, so uh, Matt Parker, uh, our art director, deserves a big shout out here. Uh, we came up with this. Uh, it's so easy to write. And then Clodwig is attached to a giant spinning wheel. <laughs> but someone has to figure out you know, how to actually make that work. And in this case, it was you know, Cody, Cody Bush, our production designer, and, and Matt Parker, our, our art director. And they... Uh, they kind of went into their mad scientist lab and came up with this super cool spinning wheel of death, which now we own that. And I figure like <laughs> at some point we're going to either have to bring it back in the series or just like put it in my living room because it's a fully functional <laughs> wheel of death. So Evan was actually attached to it and I, I, uh, yep. wrapped in and actually, spun around. I, he was and, a trooper. And he was he was a good sport. Like he, he just was. he did his own fun stunts, and we kept spinning him around. And he, I would yak after like two times around, but he, I don't know how many times we spun around, but he he was totally cool with it. So a big shout out to Brian Avery, our stunt coordinator on the day, as well as Tim Sitars and Esteban Cueto, who played our two thugs and helped run the show. 
Um, how are these stunt actors and teams cast? In most cases, we let the stunt coordinator cast the stunt performers um, because he he or she uh, understands what's required for the stunt and which performer is best adapted doing that stunt. In, in cases like this where the stunt performer needs to have lines and is a specific character, then the stunt coordinator will present us with some options and we'll um, audition it like any other role. But we're, we, instead of going through a casting director, let's say we go through the stunt coordinator so that we know we're dealing with a performer who can already do the stunt and then we just look for performance on top of that. And I, and I just got to say, those two and Brian were just so lovely. I mean, Sloan, yeah. I'm sure you remember, they took such good care of us, making oh, sure yeah, none of really us did. got hurt. And, uh, Esteban and, and Bubba came back multiple times in, yeah. different, in different either makeups or maybe even the same character. But uh, every time they came back, they were, they were always so kind and they were always so like, they, they wouldn't do anything if it wasn't safe. And, yeah. and all of the actors really, really trusted uh, the stunt actors and the stunt coordinator uh, on this show, and we have some pretty ridiculous stunts on this show, uh, especially like like sliding Caitlin down the the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you guys want to talk about that? I have no idea how that happened. I was getting veggies <laughs> thrown at me. I was I was too busy getting leaked. <laughs> so yes, we did throw uh, we threw Caitlin and then a stunt double for Caitlin down the bar. So uh, Caitlin had to do the the start and go go all the way down the bar, but for flying off the bar and landing on the floor, um, that we had a stunt performer for that, and she was wired so that she could really get air as she came off the bar um, with with full force. Uh, so that was a really fun, really ambitious stunt. Uh, initially in the script, it was written that she flew off the bar into a great big barrel of soapy dishwater, but we ha- we had to give that up uh, because we were already doing enough. Uh, and as well, it is, it just looks so painful when she hits the floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and also a quick fun fact. We just recently obviously delivered this episode to the network. And one of the, as Leanne mentioned, the stunt performer was on, was on a wire so they could really pull her fast uh, down, down the bar. And obviously we have to take those out in visual effects, but we were at like the last minute before we delivered and somehow everybody missed that those wires were still in there. When we got the last, like the last version of the episode to just do a final dummy check, you could still totally see the wires. Like, and we're like, guys, uh, wires. One thing guys. And that's how the Starbucks cup stayed in the game. Yeah. Purpose, it so. is. You can it's incredible. So many people saw those wires and they just were still there. Oh, man. Okay. So, Christian, the first big variation in the melody of Yokopo songs comes with that beef-handed louse could not hit the broad side of a house. Why in the creative process did the melody change for you in that specific moment? Um, I mean, I think it just comes back to storytelling, right? I mean, like, Yokopo's kind of puffing out his chest and he's, he's... He's taunting these guys, right? You know, whereas before it's kind of a little sing-songy, and then now he's just saying, you know, I can do way better than you guys. So um, I think that was mostly it. Yeah, just just to kind of help tell the story. Yeah, and that's a moment where your melody led me as an actor because I could hear what you wanted it to feel like in that moment. It sounded like mocking. It sounded like needling, and so that changed the performance for me. So thank you. I love that. So Clodwig sucker punches Yakopo because it's the only possible way for him to beat Yakopo in a fight. <laughs> Brian, um, what was the prep like for the big tavern brawl? 
we were very excited about the tavern brawl and it's easy to write on the page and then the tavern goes nuts <laughs> with a tavern brawl and a classic uh, you know bar fight but it's really difficult uh, to put something like that together and again we had uh, one of the best directors for this project Jeff Hunt has had a lot of experience with this and he and Brian Avery the stunt coordinator along with Chris Gann who was not technically on the episode but was still working in the background uh, they spent a lot of time uh, organizing first of all compiling all the stunt performers. Uh, I mean, anytime someone's involved in a fight, they can't just be a normal uh, extra. They have to be an actual stunt performer, which makes this a very expensive uh, scene to uh, to shoot. Uh, of course, stunt performers make a lot more than extras do, and also just makes it, makes it really complicated. So there was a lot in prep with uh, the stunt coordinator, uh, the first AD and the director, you know, sorting everything out. And the way it works in, in most cases when there's a fight, is the stunt coordinator will work with the stunt performers and they will put something together and then show it to uh, the director and Leanne and me and we'll say, oh, that looks great. How about we make this change? That sort of thing. But this was such a big fight that there were a lot of little fights being improvised on the day. So the stunt performers would, would say, okay, you guys are going to work together, you three, and then you two and that sort of stuff. So uh, a lot of it was done in prep. Uh, and then some of it they were just Im improvising uh, as as we shot the scene. And th that scene, I think uh, all of the the tavern brawl took a full day. I think it was more than a full day that we were just shooting tavern brawls. And and uh, you're right, it smelled so bad in there afterward. So uh, it was it was pretty complex. Yeah, and and I got to say, shooting that scene was like a dream come true for me. I wanted to be part of a a brawl shoot so badly. I, wish I was in it. I really, I I've always wanted to do that. I know it's good, but I know my character would never do that. So like, <laughs> I I had to hide behind the stool. But one day, maybe. Sorry, go on, Josh. I was just no. Really it's fine. It was just so so so. I start the brawl by smashing this glass on the largest human I've ever met. <laughs> um, so so we had. I think six candy glass mugs, which meant we could do it six times tops. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about where to hold it so I wouldn't accidentally crush it in my hand or have it fall off. We didn't want to waste it. And I had to walk up and just slam this thing into this guy's neck. And one time I walked up and I smacked it into his neck and it just didn't break. And I had this moment of dread that I'd picked up a real glass. And granted, this guy's neck is the size of my torso. But still, that would hurt. And we kind of stopped. And I turned around. And I went, I think I got the wrong kind of mug. He takes it from me and pops it in his hand. And he goes, nope, it was the right one. <laughs> <laughs> we just went again. I get to have such a good time on this show. And then trying to scuttle through all these different groups, improvising fights, like you were saying, Brian, to make my way back to the stool so we could have our moments slown was just a blast. And... They let me do this, my own stunt of getting thrown into the pile of people, which was a lot of fun. And I got to improvise a little Mamma Mia, which is always, it's always nice to get awesome. one of those. There. <laughs> you really improvise a lot. Like, like pretty much all your, uh, most of your quips are improvised. <laughs> yeah, Brian and Leon are very generous with me in letting me improvise at the, you know, on the tails of scenes and stuff, especially when, uh. Evan and I are spitting in each other's faces. Let's pause on the tavern brawl for a second, lest we forget about Baldrick and Hexla's predicament. Talk about the speed demon briefly. Tell me everything about animating the speed demon and the combination of special and visual effects to make him come to life. Yeah, that 
it all came together so well, but it was not as easy as it looks now. I mean, the, first of all, uh, on the day, our special effects supervisor, Josh von Bedinsky, I believe is how you pronounce his name, rigged a lot of different gags. For example, he rigged a, a pillow with a blaster, an air blaster, to blow up all of the stuffing of the of the pillow into the air. And he rigged a lot of stuff uh, on the counter and in the cabinets on wires that he had to pull out. And so, so Joel and Danielle, as they were acting, had to imagine that a speed moon was running by and then all the stuff would fly out uh, of the cabinet or, or whatever. And then... And they gave great reactions. Uh, and then we had a stunt double uh, for Joel when Joel jumps and tries to capture it. Uh, that was a, a stunt performer there. And then afterward, uh, our visual effects uh, supervisor, Jay Wynn, and his team had to go in. And first of all, they created, uh, custom designed our speed demon. We Speedy is what we were calling him. Uh, and he looks kind of like the Noid from the old Domino commercials, if you, if you remember. Uh, they had to create him and then place him in the real environment uh, and marry the speed demon with this with the practical special effects that were happening so it's it's super complicated but i think it all came together really well so christian there's a bigger part of your job that we haven't discussed at all yet which is scoring the show uh what's that process like and please tell me like i'm an actor who knows nothing about it because that's what i am <laughs> of course um yeah so this is actually 99% of my job is scoring the show. Songs are just kind of a fun side gig that I get to do from time to time. Um, so the process of scoring the show, um, it starts with me getting a new episode and watching through it and coming up with my ideas about where I think music should go, what I think it should do. And then I'll cut a bunch of you know music as a placeholder. Um, after that, I'll have a meeting with Brian Land, and we call it a spotting session. And that's where we'll, I'll, sh I'll show them kind of my ideas of where I think music should go, what kind of music should be there. And they'll give me their feedback. And, um, you know, like, let's start the music sooner here when Dwight turns around. This music is the wrong tone, needs to be more serious. You know, we'll have a, a big, long, long discussion about it. Then I go off and I compose the episode. I write all the music for the episode send it back to them for feedback, um, get their feedback address, and then off to the mix it goes, and on to the next one. So how often are you composing new themes within an episode? How often are you taking old themes and creating variations? Are there go-tos? How does that work for you? Yeah, so the, with Dwight, the, I put in a ton of work in the beginning, right? Kind of coming with the palette of the show. Um, and it's a really fun show, show to score. I mean, it's like, you know, one minute I'm writing Celtic punk rock. The next I'm doing some serious, super serious, mystical Lord of the Rings orchestra. And the next I'm doing like contemporary emotional electric guitar stuff. Those kind of heartfelt moments at the end of the episodes. And, and um, you know, so the first season was a ton of work kind of figuring out our palette. Um, you know, what, what, what works, what doesn't. And um, so now, we, you know, it's, it's pretty well-oiled machine. But every episode has some sort of new and exciting um character that i get to come up with a new idea so a lot of it's the, you know we're using the pal that i've established but every episode brings a new challenge sloan the look on your face while you're watching the brawl play out is priceless uh do you think dwight will ever get used to seeing these great acts of violence and chaos no <laughs> no, no I, don't, I don't think he'll ever get used to it for multiple reasons you know for from a creative standpoint, I don't think he should ever get used to it uh, just because then it takes away the magic of his character and, and it takes away the 
the audience's uh, relatability to him. And, and, and like, it's almost like, I feel like Dwight's presence is sometimes like an allowance to laugh, you know, because, because it is so absurd to Dwight, it, it is absurd to the audience. Therefore it's okay to find it funny. Uh, and like, and that's, that's the case sometimes, but not all the time. Cause there are certainly different times where like Dwight is not in the room and something can absolutely be funny. But I, but I think, um, as far as his character goes, I think, I think he's definitely going to always be completely surprised and shocked by everything and appalled by, um, people eating turkey legs and, um, disgusted at their lack of hygiene and uh, just bewildered at the fact that uh, there's an object that you put on your finger and then you can see the future. So uh, I think, I think, yeah, I, I don't think he'll ever get used to it, but I yeah. think he gets more used to the people and, and then those reactions change. I think, I think he gets more used to like, he gets more used to Claude Wood shenanigans and then reacts in a different way that is still, in shock, but more in a, a uh, more in a, a, a personal shock. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like I feel like that would change, but not the overall surprise itself. Oh, my darling lady fair, you have gone, I know not where. You are swallowed by a giant, though I thought it most defiant. Now, here am I. In a smelly tavern place, singing for a mean man with an angry face. So the kids escape their fate like little piggy cowards. The speed demon escapes the house <laughs> to create unimaginable damage to the world, and we're left with Sir Aldred, Herbin Fred Frim, <laughs> and Jacopo in the tavern. We've seen Sir Aldred resurrect. We've seen him take the talents of his enemies. But now we see him perform magic we've seen possible before only by witches. He turns Hellabad into a parrot and threatens Jacopo with a similar fate to keep him under his thumb. You've taken a character that was originally an antagonist and made him a victim in Jacopo under a far more dangerous villain. What does this do for the characters of Sir Aldred and Jacopo structurally in the world of the show? That's a great question. So um, this gives us an opportunity to bring Jacopo back into our story uh, and give him some significance. Like he was our first real villain to emerge into the story um, and, and was, was after Greta's throne in, in a pretty, you know, devilish way. Um, and, and now we see him in a completely new light. We see what he's like compared to a truly bad man. <laughs> um, and that there's really no comparison. Uh, Jacopo could only hope to be as intimidating and terrifying as Sir Aldred is. So, so it, it softens Jacopo to see him as the victim in this case. Um, and, and we're going to need that softening it, where the story goes. Um, it also causes our heart to sort of go out to Yokopo. He's in a predicament now, um, now that Sir Aldred has, has kind of got him in his clutches. Uh, and it, it raises the stakes uh, and makes Sir Aldred even even more threatening. It's been a while since we've seen Sir Aldred do something dastardly. Uh, and so we needed to sort of remind the audience that this is a bad guy with bad intentions uh, and that he is really powerful. We know he can steal the abilities of anyone. And so at some point along the way, he stole the abilities, the ability to turn people into animals. Uh, and now he can do that. So we, we just needed those reminders and we needed to, uh, to show his his evilness by comparing him to someone that we thought was evil until now. 
That's a great answer. So, Christian, let's let's end on an up note. No pun intended. Your main credits theme kicks off at the end and beginning of every episode of this show and the real show. <laughs> what was your inspiration for the show's exhilarating and earwormy theme? Yeah. Um, so I remember our my very first meeting with Brian Leanne um, when I was still pitching to get the show. They they mentioned the use of Celtic punk rock. They shared a playlist with me uh, with Dropkick Murphys and Flogging Molly on it. And um, so that was definitely a launching pad for a lot of the show and and also the, the opening credits music. Um, from there, though, I think we definitely went a little somewhere a little more poppy and happy and upbeat than Dropkick Murphys. <laughs> They're pretty hardcore um, for the, the opening titles. Um, uh, but then also the other inspiration, I think, was the, the really great animation and narration. I mean, the, the opening to credits is basically a short film. We're telling a whole story in those 45 seconds. And so... You know, I got the animation and we got Sloan's narration and kind of placed it around and then made the music work with that. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so a bit of Celtic punk rock mixed with some pop and um, and some great storytelling. Sounds like a delicious soda. <laughs> <laughs> every every time I, I, I have no idea how many times I've seen those opening credits and that music but every time i i get you know my foot starts tapping and i get all animated and excited it's exactly what we dreamed of uh for yeah it couldn't have been couldn't be more perfect so so before we wrap up um christian and sloan um since we're in quarantine i'd love to ask is there something new you've tried or discovered during your time at home i i, I go for some so I, I joke that I've basically been training for this my entire career uh, as a composer working for in a cold, <laughs> dark room by myself at home uh, for over a decade. So I got this, man. This is uh, nothing new for me. But uh, I did buy a mountain bike before all the stores closed so I can kind of get out there and get a little fresh air. So I'm, I'm learning how to mountain bike. I, uh, I'm doing I'm cleaning and organizing things that I have not done in five years. I mean, I, I still clean. I just mean like I've been trying to go through <laughs> my my worldly possessions uh, for like five years. Like every I've lived in this house for like five years and and I have not like I've not cleaned my desk of, of, of things. I have like I, like, you know, how they say like, oh, you dig a thousand feet in the ground, you go a million years back or something like every thousand feet is another million years. I have birthday cards, like a stack of birthday cards. It's like it's like 18, 17, 16, 15, 14. Like, it's just like you go back, 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 back. I had to go through all those. I've gone through things like my house has never looked cleaner. I've never I've never felt like I've had this much space before. I, I feel I feel like a new person. Like it's like I highly recommend that going through just old stuff and like rearranging everything, a little bit of feng shui, if you will. Um, because I really do feel a bit rejuvenated. Like like I tend to think in the past, and if I'm getting a little philosophical in this moment, like I, I tend to really dwell on the past and really get stuck in like old ideas and old thoughts and old feelings. And I feel like this this uh, little bit of renovation like helps me get over some of that. So yeah, I highly recommend anybody stuck at home rearrange everything you own and maybe own a bit less because uh, possessions are possessions, but but experiences last forever. <laughs> That's really lovely. All right. OK, well, that wraps it up for season three, episode two of Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind the scenes podcast about everything Dwight. 
Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Christian. And thank you, Sloan. You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H. Adams. You can follow Sloan at Sloan Siegel. You can follow Christian at Christian Davis underscore composer. You can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. And you can follow me at the Josh Breslow. Tune in again next week for season three, episode three, Fancy Pants. Until then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home, it might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. Executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams. Our studio engineer is Mike Schmidt. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis. And this podcast is recorded at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood.